This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Today, we are joined by the lovely Olivia Blake. Olivia, otherwise known as Alexine Fowell-Fomuth, is a true lover and writer of stories that range from the fantastical to the supernatural. She's written novels, short stories, graphic novels, and the explosive dark academia phenomenon, The Atlas Six. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I uh, have my baby with me. He's growling. So <laughs> at some point, I'm hoping he will fall asleep. But in case you hear any any growls, that's just a little teething goblin. That is an adorable teething goblin. The Atlas Six. This little gem has taken quite a journey. Self-published gem, a re-release with tour books, a TV adaptation. So you got millions of TikTok fans cheering you on, cheering this book on from the start. What has this experience been like? And what has this sort of just explosive fandom meant to you? Well, starting off with a real softball question. <laughs> of course, of course. your feelings about this, <laughs> uh, about being a sensation. Most of the time, I can't even process it. Most of yeah. the time, it's just so surreal. And so I just describe it as like a fever dream. Sometimes I wake up and I'm like, did that really happen? <laughs> if anything, being the mother of a small chaos goblin is very helpful <laughs> because it does not leave me the room to ask things like, how do I feel about this? <laughs> there are so many times, I think uh, just recently I got an email about all the different international like subright sales mm-hmm. and completely unprecedented. Like a lot of times I have to ask my agent, what does this mean? And she's like, this is crazy. Nothing about this is normal. <laughs> but then I'm like, cut to me sitting on the floor of my baby's little playpen. Like he's crawling over my lap and screaming. And it's just like, how can I even... <laughs> It's nice nice to have sort of like a counterweight. Yeah, no, it's incredible. It is. And book talk, obviously, is just a huge, that's sort of the thing that's been really celebrated. But this has been on bookstagram and book Twitter. And I I don't want to leave out the many social media communities. I come from fandom. I started writing fan fiction. And so I'm familiar with the nature of these sort of online Mm -hmm. communities and the way people can really just fall in love with something and just make it part of their personality. And to see that happening with my work is, it's a lot. My husband told me while I was in the hospital holding my newborn baby, did you know sales have gone up? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. I was (laughs) in late. (laughs) It was shortly after that, that someone sent me a message on Tumblr that was like, I don't know if you knew this, but this TikTok has gone viral and I just thought you should see it. And yeah, and it was so strange, but it's obviously so incredible. I think that a lot of times imposter syndrome comes to mind. That's the worst. My agent is fantastic. The amazing Amelia Apple of Triada. And she told me the other day, I think I was just expressing sort of like cerebral concerns. I was like, you know, writing is such a slow process. You get so, so many rejections. You know, I was trying to do this for like five years. The whole reason that I was self-publishing was because I didn't think this was a good fit for the industry. You know, so I was querying manuscripts while also self-publishing books that I thought no one was going to want really, just things that I wanted to write that I didn't think were going to fit with publishing on high. But it's still um, kind of like nice to get them out there, like yeah, get that response. Yeah. Like you never know. Like kind of like, yeah, it's good to sort of release these works into the wild. Yes. And I'm pretty prolific, especially before I had a baby. I had lots of time. 
produce lots of stories. And so it was just like, every time I finished something, I would kind of weigh it like, "Mm, do I think that this is on trend or that this is marketable in any way? Maybe not. And then I just self-publish it. And so I was prepared mentally for like a long slog, you know, for like a real like grueling climb. Instead, I got like dropped off a cliff, you know, a great cliff, a fantastic cliff, but certainly a cliff. And my agent was like, just so you know, you're not a con artist. And I was like, oh God. I can't believe like thank you for just hitting the nail on the head because I totally feel like there's so so many parts of this have felt almost inauthentic because the TikTok thing I'm not even on TikTok I'm not that like proficient at social media so a lot of people will come to me and say like how did you do this how how did it happen thinking that I'll have like marketing secrets but I don't the only secret is I wrote for like 10 to 12 hours a day every day for five years and hopefully something you know this one thing I wrote happened to resonate and that's the best that I can say as far as secrets. Yeah, that's a great one. Cause it is, it's just like, keep writing. If you love it and you, it's something that you're passionate about, keep writing and like, and something will resonate. Something will hit with the fans and with other people. And that's like the best feeling. My advice to any writers listening is obviously if you want to create art and you want to create art the way you want to, and it's just for you, that's fine. But if you want to have a writing career, then my advice is adapt but keep going. Pivot when you have to. Understand that you have to get your foot in the door however you get your foot in the door. And then after that, you can change the rules. But you know, if this is really what you want, don't give up, but pivot when you can. That's perfectly said. Because it is. It's like you're not giving up who you are, but you're just like, you're adapting, which is something that I feel like, especially in recent times, we've had to do like continuously. So it's also a good, very, very good life advice. So do you have, so, I mean, again, this book, The Atlas Six has kind of, you know, gone the gambit and now it's being adapted. And that's kind of, I'm sure that is also mind blowing. So do you have any exclusives, any updates you can give us on this adaptation, but also like, what has that been? That's like another evolution of it. And like, what's been the most fun process of all of that for you? This is another thing where the reality of it is perhaps disappointing because... (laughs) So I took all these meetings with producers and studios and and whatnot while I was drafting The Atlas Paradox, which is book two of the Atlas trilogy, which is coming out October 25th from tour (laughs) of this year. And yes, I'm panicking, you know, because it was really important to us. The the Atlas 6 came out technically in 2020. So there are a lot of people who have already read it who are waiting for the next moment. And so we didn't want to push the sequel too far, which means that I drafted this entire book in two weeks plus two weeks. I had my mom come stay with me to take care of the baby. And I just wrote like I would feed him immediately start writing. And then I take a Zoom call with a producer and I'd have to be like, I'm so sorry. This is the honor of my life. Please understand that this is incredible (laughs) dream, but I need you to get off this call in 30 minutes. Yes, but this is what you have. I'm so incredibly blessed to be here. However. (laughs) It was was so, so hard. Who is like prepared to sell their IP? It's such a strange concept. And so the first time I sat down, I realized I didn't know who was in charge. Like who's, Uh who's... And then I realized it was me, like they were waiting for me to direct the conversation. And I was like, oh my God, well, you know, I'd love to dwell on how fantastic this is, but I have to feed my child. So So it was incredible. I will say, so um, it's complicated the way Hollywood works, but I did get approached by Amazon Studios and then by a couple of different producers that have first look deals with Amazon. And so I technically chose based on my producers, knowing that they had a deal with Amazon. So it was sort of like a, yeah. So my producers are Brightstar, they're UK based. They are fantastic. It was just instant creative chemistry. 
we got on the call. And again, this was this was a 30 minute call. They got the same amount of time as everybody else did. And it was just right off the bat, we were talking like we were already working together. They were telling me their ideas. And I was like, oh, I love that. And what if we did this? You know, when I left the Zoom call, I was like, I feel like we already started like just right there. We started making this show. It was so incredible. And then also one thing that I think is fantastic about Amazon Studios is it's headed by a woman, uh, Jen Hankey. So, and that has, you know, a trickle down effect in Hollywood where all the studio executives I've met with are also women, but it is incredible to be in a room with people who respect my time, respect my creativity, who are basically giving me the credit that I feel like before this, I was in, you know, male dominated industries, constantly getting mistaken for the secretary or like being the one who was supposed to go get coffee. And so to just be like, no, really be, you know, in a room with people who are really not just admiring, but just respectful of my process and curious about my work and my life and my brain. That's who you want to give your brain to. That's who you give your IP to. A hundred percent. And you were talking about before you were saying imposter syndrome. And that is something that I think is, it can be crippling. And it, you know, it takes a lot to sort of say, no, this is my value and what I can bring. And it's, it's usually more than anyone thinks that it is like that or that you give yourself credit for. So that's amazing. And I'm so happy for you. That just sounds like such an, like, no, that does. It just sounds like it's, it's not often that you hear like that kind of story where it's like this just like sort of creative collaboration spark and just having that value. So it's nice to sort of like the work is so wonderful. And then to know that it's being taken care of by amazing people who really like value you, value the story, value the fans. Like that's just wonderful. Okay. So I'm going to get into the actual book. I personally was quite hooked from the start. There was a line early on. It's a conversation between Libby Rhodes and Atlas because the problem with knowledge, Miss Rose, is it's an inexhaustible craving. The more you have of it, the less you feel you know. That's when often go mad in search of it. And I don't know, again, there's plenty of lines where it's talking about this, you know, knowledge and craving knowledge, but for some reason that stuck with me. I mean, it just made sense to me. And I guess maybe in that moment, just thinking about how we have more access to information now more than ever. Yeah, it, it is true. We always we always want more and we never seem to learn from what we have. And it's just this like this crazy cycle. I mean, the premise for this story is so intriguing and timely, really. So what was the spark that started it? I mean, you were talking about how like you just, you know, you were writing, trying to get these stories out into the world, not sure how they were going to resonate. But to me, I feel like the premise of the story is just so fantastic that like like when you were saying that, I was like, how could you not know that everyone was going to love the story? Which I, I understand when you're writing and it, it is, it's like a totally different process. What was that spark? Like what started it? I mean, I should be clear. I knew some people were going to like this. I just didn't <laughs> think that publishing was going to like it. You know, it's it's a pretty unconventional story, not so much in the setting, but in the way that it's told, the way that it's super character driven. The yes. plot is sort of invisible. You know, it's the way that the characters are juxtaposed that you see where the plot comes in. Exactly. And that's obviously not for everyone. And that was my assumption that was just like, you know, I wanted to write something that I wanted to read. And I want to read about people who are not necessarily trying to do what's right or wrong and are actually having to look at the world in a very different way. But that line that you bring up, the earliest spark that I can think of, because this book actually went through multiple rounds. It was originally one of the first 
manuscripts I had ever written that was like a portal fantasy. They were younger. They were college age. It focused on different characters. And then I, as I was rereading it to myself, I was bored. I was just like, you know, this has been, this has been done before. These characters are very archetypal. It's not interesting enough. However, there is something here. Like Parisa and Callum were background characters in the original draft. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and you see them sort of floating in the background and it's like, well, why are they in the background? They should be up at the front. So I rearranged, I made them older, I made the stakes higher, but everything sort of comes from this quote that I think it's Yeats, but I attribute it to my English teacher, Jeanette Smith <laughs> of Amador Valley High School. Shout out to her. Um, she's been retired for a long time, but still. Uh, she wrote, I distinctly remember reading it on the whiteboard. Like every time I think about it, I'm back in that desk. And it was, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. Wow. And she had a different quote every day. And that's the one that really stuck with me. And I thought, what if we took that to its darkest possible turn? You know, <laughs> like what if what if the lighting of that fire is actually extremely dangerous and not just to the world? I, I didn't really want to have big, bad stakes. You know, I wanted the stakes to be intensely personal. So it's not so much what is this doing to the world, although that is part of it, but what is it doing to you? And yeah. what is it doing to the person who is having to make choices based on their morality, no longer being so objective. This isn't Ten Commandments morality. This is how do we get through day to day when we have access to all this unimaginable amount of knowledge and power. And I'm going to try so hard not to give too much away because there is a pivotal scene. <laughs> there is a pivotal scene in the sequel where someone sort of pokes holes in this. And it's kind of what you mentioned, which is we do have access to unprecedented amounts of information and we don't necessarily learn from it. So part of looking at this magical secret society with all this hidden knowledge, it's kind of like, well, what would happen if that knowledge was out there, which yeah. is a little bit poked at in the first book, but it's kind of like, we're already here. As much as people romanticize the idea of lost knowledge, there is so much knowledge that is not lost that we still don't act on. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I guess interrogating sort of a collective morality in that sense. It's like, okay, these people happen to have access to this extremely fantastical information and power. But how does that reflect us? In terms of raising the stakes, those were the stakes. The original book, it was very like, there's a bad guy and we're going to beat this bad guy. And then it was like, you know what? Let's remove that. This book does not have a bad guy. Everybody is everybody else's villain and their own <laughs> villain. Many and their own, yes. We're going to get to the characters because now like that we're starting to talk about characters. I'm like chomping at the bit And I can't tell you like how many times, especially, and again, I don't want to give too much away for even for people who have who have read it, who are listening. I felt like there was several several instances, even in the beginning where I was like, oh, this character is probably this. Within like a page, I was like, oh no, I don't know what I'm reading. I'm like, I, I'm just going to like take all my pretenses, like everything that I thought I knew and just kind of like throw it out the window and just like strap in and enjoy this ride because... You think you know the bad guy. And then, because I think we are just sort of that, that's what we're attuned to be like, where are the stakes? Where are the, who is the villains? Who's the more, maybe the morally gray character, but who's the good guy? And then, yeah. And then as you're kind of going around and, and that's life. I mean, we're, we're all like a little bit of everything. So love a story with multiple points of view. And so the minute that like I opened this and, you know, you start seeing the names, it's like, oh, okay. Because it is, it's just, it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, a character you know, presents themselves from one way and then you get a completely different side of them and a completely different side of the story with obviously multiple characters. So, I mean, you have so many amazing characters to hear about and it's just crazy to me to think that Parisia and Callum were 
could have ever, I feel like they're never in the background. Like, how could they have ever been in? I know. I told you there was something wrong with the manuscript. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that they've been brought forward. So you got all these amazing characters to follow. And I just think that that makes it so much more fun. So you're writing this. Was there a character that came first? When, you know, you're thinking like, okay, these are my characters. Was there a character that came first? And then I'm going to ask, is there one of the six that you identify most with? Libby was the first character because she is sort of the most archetypal character. She's our entry into the world and she's a very easy entry point um, to the point where I, I think you have some idea going in. You're like, she's familiar. I know what kind of story this is going to be because I know her or because she is me in some cases. And then hopefully it shifts as you continue to read other entry points. <laughs> I am most interested in books that really psychologically undress the characters. I really enjoy quiet family dramas, really thinky interiority. I also, <laughs> it's a weird shout out, but If I Had Your Face by Francis Shaw is a book mm-hmm. I always recommend to people who like this book. It doesn't share the dark academia or anything. Um, it's not fantasy, but it does share the way that I tell the story, which is to give you insight into one character and then juxtapose it with someone very different. And then you see sort of like the shadow that the one character couldn't see. I open with Libby and then I essentially treat my characters, and this is something I've said a lot, but I treat them, especially in this book, like colors on a color wheel. The existence of one character sort of uh, necessitates their equal and opposite. I recently got a question from someone. I get a lot of writing questions. And one, I think it was something, it was like, how do you write rivals? Like, how do you write, especially like rivals to lovers? And I was like, the thing is that people who are rivals fixate on their differences, but what they really hate is their similarities. And the things that they share, the things that you hate about yourself that you see in your rival, that's what you really hate. And so it was actually kind of easy to say, okay, there's a Libby, which means there's a Callum. And kind of going from there to create the tension between characters. Um, Because that to me was what was really important. I personally think that authors who have a favorite character, you can always tell. Um, you can you can feel when an author is like excited to write a character, I think. And I didn't want that to happen in this book. I wanted it to be just equally interesting. You're not supposed to necessarily like all of the characters. It would be very hard, I think, to like all of them equally, but to at least find each of their stories interesting. And I think in that sense, they are all a little bit of me. You know, I, it's hard to say that Libby, she's very familiar. I had someone once asked me, you know, because I, because I play with identity and kind of hint at neurodivergence and someone asked me what's wrong with Libby? Like, does she have anxiety? (laughs) And I was like, well, Libby has anxiety, but primarily she's 22. So (laughs) that's enough. (laughs) Yeah. Even Taylor Swift has proven this. What was her line? That's like something, how can you know everything at 18 and nothing at 22? Yeah, (laughs) it's true. It's true. And I think honestly, the expectation sometimes that we do. Yeah. Like I think all the time, like how was I supposed to know everything? I was like my whole life was supposed to be planned out by the time I was 18. Like that just seems crazy to me. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And so she's right at that age where she's realizing that like she planned very, very carefully to get to this moment. But after this moment, it's that same cliff. You're getting dropped a cliff off a cliff and you have to decide what to do. And most importantly, you have to decide who you are. And she doesn't have an answer to that. And that's obviously very stressful in a way that's um, within reach. But I also feel like, you know, there are parts of me and all of them. And I also got asked one time, why doesn't Callum care about people, which I love. I love that. (laughs) There was someone that was like, he's an empath. Like, how can he not care? He knows other people's emotions. That 
doesn't mean anything. You can know lots of things. <laughs> yes. We, we have lots of knowledge. It doesn't mean that we learn anything from it or we do anything, you know, we necessarily do things with it. So uh, yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. So that, that's another question that I just love because, you know, he's really fun to write on a day when people are very irritating. <laughs> I can see that being like very cathartic. I'm like I wish I could get today. everyone else's disgusting emotions off me. <laughs> but <laughs> now thinking of of writing, um, and I'm not going to ask any process questions, but I am going to ask when you're writing, do you have like a playlist for your books? Is there like music that inspires you when you're writing? Or is there like a certain type of music that you'd like to listen to when you're writing? And it could be, maybe it's like when I'm, when I'm writing this kind of story, I like to listen to this. Or when I'm writing this kind of story, I like to listen to these. That's what kind of like fills you up. I do, but I, it's not, it's not while I write. I find like lyrics very distracting while I'm writing. So I actually listen to the same songs. I listen to the King Arthur soundtrack while I write. A lot of people hate this movie. It was like a terrible box office flop, but I love it. It just ticks every box for me. <laughs> we all have that movie. Everyone has that movie. Yeah. That and the Tudor soundtrack. I just, those two things just play over and over with like everything I write. But I do have like daydream playlists. And usually, especially because when I used to be able to write many things at once, I would be too bored to work on the same thing for too long in a row. So it'd be like Monday was this project and Tuesday was this project and Wednesday was this. And so I would have a playlist that I would listen to for, you know, a few minutes beforehand to get me back the same like emotional state that I was the last time I was writing. And the Atlas six does have a playlist. It's on Spotify in my public Spotify. Um, I actually, I think Tor put it on their website as well, but I will say that these are vibe playlists. So like, there's a lot of like fight scene montage type songs in this playlist. That's like, this is what I was working with when I was trying to imagine the emotional volatility in addition to the actual fight scene. But definitely the playlists vary depending on the mood of the story. To me, I, I think it's Neil Gaiman who said that like daydreaming is just critical to the process of writing. And I definitely agree. Like you have to let your mind wander. When I was pondering, I already knew, okay, this manuscript, I put it aside for I think a couple of years and then was revisiting in my head while I was driving on the five, uh, which is a very, very boring stretch of road <laughs> between LA and San Francisco. And um, I was just driving and pondering and the sort of lightning bolt idea came to me. And I think it's because my brain like could rest. I was also driving safely, but... <laughs> right, important to know that. Safely driving. <laughs> but the, it, did, it did occur to me on this, you know, long, boring stretch of like rolling hills that like, ah, what if this happened? You know, what if, what if the twist is they have to do this to be initiated? Well, but I think, yeah, I feel like you hear that a lot. Like people will say like they get their best ideas in the shower. It's like that time when you're just kind of like, to your, what you were saying, like you're allowing your brain to sort of just take the wheel, like kind of like allowing it yeah. to sort of wander. And you're not thinking about like the 800 other things that maybe you should be thinking about or that like kind of swamp your mind like every day, especially with a baby, like just like constant like checklist. And, you know, did I do this? And I have to still do this and whatnot. And so it is those moments like your mind is able to play in a bit. I always say, I always think that. And of course, though, it's like when it is doing that, like you said, like you're sitting in traffic. And I mean, I guess maybe that a little bit better than the shower. Cause I definitely feel like sometimes when I'm in the shower and I get these ideas, I'm like, okay. And I have no pen and no paper. Like by the time I get out of the shower, this idea will be gone. But yeah, I like, go into the shower specifically to think though, I, my husband yeah. like knows this, that when I get a round of edits back from my editor, I'll be like, I'm going to go take a very long and indulgent shower. <laughs> um, and there are lots of times when I'm like yelling 
to my phone, like, Hey, note this. <laughs> hey Siri or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Cause it's like, what am I going to write? And I was thinking that I was like, hi, maybe I should just do that. I have it there. Like in the background, I can like yell at it to like open up, open up notes, write this down. And I mean, in anything, I think to just being, having that time to like, sort of, and I'm going to say meditate and it's just terrible because we're talking about driving. Like but it. like, <laughs> it's just right. Driving. Because we were driving safely. But it is that maybe it's different for everyone. Like when you're allowing your mind to sort of wander a bit. There are a lot of, you know, creative people who get frustrated by writer's block. The only thing I can say, I don't necessarily believe in the demon manifesting of writer's block. You know what I mean? Like people are like the thing, it's cursed, it'll follow you. But I do know there are smaller blocks. And I think it tends to happen when your brain is like overloaded by tedium or stress or anxiety. There's a reason that while I was in jobs I didn't like, I am a law school dropout. So while I was in law school, <laughs> it was creating too many cages in my head, you know, and yeah. I there was there was no imagination left. There was no creativity left. Um, it really drained me in a way that, you know, hopefully it doesn't to everyone. I know there are fantastic lawyers out there, but I wouldn't have been one of them because it would have taken the best parts of me, which yeah. was my creativity, my ability to dream. So I think that a lot of times, Part of the privilege of being able to have a creative career is being able to give myself the space to just think um, and just wonder. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you do have that. So we have the Atlas Six, the Atlas Paradox is the second in the and this is a plan trilogy. Is it still plan trilogy? <laughs> There is definitely a book three coming. There have been some nudges of like, what if you also did this? What if you <laughs> now it's a trilogy? So when you were starting this, did you realize it was going to be like, did you know when you started, like, this is going to be a trilogy and like map it, it mapped it out as such? Yeah, I did. It's essentially, um, it's sort of like how I love the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante are my favorite books. And they're not actually broken up. They're just one long story. And that was how I was envisioning this. I was like, this is just a very complicated story that's going to zoom out. It starts very claustrophobic, just focused on in this sort of isolationist environment so that we can Mm -hmm feel the morality shift. And then we'll zoom out and see the consequences of that. And it's going to take, just from a construction point of view, it's going to take three books. So I always knew it was a trilogy. Part of the reason that I did want to do the revision and work with Tor was because I knew that otherwise it was just going to be like a pet project. You know, it was something that I was have to get to when my other contractual work was, yeah. So it's been a real gift to make this like my actual job. To have that structure to be like, okay, this is, we're going to, and that support too, because that's so important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have a fantastic team at Tor. Shout out to my editor, Molly McGee. (laughs) These are my rapid fire questions for you. I just love to talk about books. So actually currently I'm very lucky because I get an advanced read of Book of Night by Holly Black. Oh, So it's her (laughs) debut. And to be honest, I actually have not read, I'm not familiar with her young adult work because just because of my age, like when it came out, I I was too too old to read young adult, but also too young to know that like that category was going to explode. So this is very interesting. It's shadow magic, but to me, it reads almost like allegorical opioid crisis. It's very reminiscent to me of Mayor of Easttown, which I really loved last year. I don't know. I've lost track of time. I know. I was going to say, I'm like, I think, no, I think you're right. But yeah, it's like, I feel like 2020, 2021. I'm like, I don't know what year. So it's like (laughs) Mayor and her setting and her reckoning with the past and then threw in this like really cool magic system. Yes. So that's very exciting. I also just read All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders. Yeah. I'm very late to this book because it won awards. (laughs) (laughs) So people have noticed it already. (laughs) I really love books that 
surprise me books where you can't see where it's going. And this book is like many different books in one. Like it, it essentially changes styles and tones multiple times. What I thought was just so funny about that book was it examines the concept of a pandemic before the pandemic happens. And then also there's a thing about madrigals being the thing that everybody's like super into madrigals. It just reminded me so much of like the sea shanty era of the pandemic. That's just like, <laughs> we, like we're facing down the end of the world and we're making bread and singing songs. Yep. It was just such a cute moment of humanity. <laughs> No, but it is I mean, true. I mean, I'm sorry. The pandemic was, COVID is a terrible thing, but the yeah. responses that we had, they were all over the place. And, Our and response it, to isolation was to become even more of this sort of collective community. Yeah. So, also like celebrating a little bit of that like collective weirdness, like yes. that we were sort of like, we're going to be okay with this. We're going to be okay with taking pictures of our sourdough starters and our sweatpants and that this is our new normal and this is okay. And we're going to celebrate our weird. And so I'm going to make this one feta pasta. Like. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is going to be so much love there. Like there's going to be, we're going to put everything we have into it. So that's good. So now I'm just going to ask you also what you were watching. So mayor of Easttown. I'm currently, I'm watching season two of the Witcher, which like this is, I wanted to watch it the instant it came out because I, I loved season one. Uh, it's one of those things where sometimes it's hard for me to shut off my narrative brain. The one that's like, Oh, but this should have happened. And why aren't these events? Like, why aren't they showing us these events? But with the Witcher, I'm so happy to just turn my brain off and like watch Henry Cable fight monsters and whatnot. <laughs> no, I, I can't recommend that show enough. And I feel like I tell people and like, I think they look at it like, oh, it's like high fantasy. Like, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to get into it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, yes, but like, also like, it's weird. It's got a little bit of camp, you know, it's not yes. too, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Nope. It either, you know, either a female showrunner or female writers or something. Like once I found that out, I was like, oh, like that's why the emotional stakes are so like, those emotional beats are so good. And yes. like, like it just felt like it was different than a lot of the fantasy that had been coming out. But anyway, my child does not sleep unless <laughs> I hold him. So for the last like many months, my bedtime has been 7 p.m. and I've had no time to watch anything, but I'm transitioning him into his own bed and I get just enough time <laughs> to watch like 75% of an episode of The Witcher. Well, you know what? Literally and figuratively, baby Literally. steps, you'll get there. Baby steps. Yeah. And you need to sleep in your crib. And <laughs> I know that's like, that's a whole process, but once you're there and then you'll be great. And then you'll be, I'm sure watching and reading everything you want to read. I'm trying um, to it. I'm trying to enjoy the many, the one thing is that, you know, my job is very cerebral. It's all in my head. So even like social media and stuff and writing, it's all in my brain. So when it's just me and my baby and he just needs to sleep and that's like the time when I get to rest. So I'm just trying to enjoy that. I'm going to take a guess on what this might be, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So what was your favorite memory from the last year? Yeah, I mean, God, there, there's obviously a lot to choose from. And my son is involved in all of them. Yeah. <laughs> my son and the Atlas Six are involved and deeply entrenched. There's that moment of my son holding my son and my husband saying, have you seen these sales? And then like later... <laughs> There's this moment of my, my son, like he was really early to start walking, like with help. He's not walking by himself, but he takes steps and he's stuff. Scooting. Yeah. He's like, kinda he's a real crawler now, but he will take, you know, steps if someone holds him. And, uh, the first time he did that, I looked up from editing the Atlas six and it just seems like every time there's a milestone for my son, 
there's one for the Atlas Six as well, or the other way around. Like it's just it's weird that I can't separate them. No, you know, and then when he when he asks for his baby book when he gets older, you could just hand him the series and be like, this is <laughs> this is yeah, one and the same. Yeah. So we're finishing so we're at the Atlas Paradox and then completing this this amazing trilogy. What's a goal that you set for yourself in 2022? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a writing goal. It could just be anything. I'm a planner. I'm a plan ahead kind of person. It's how I it's how I deal with anxiety, you know. I always say that I treat anxiety like a chronic pain. It's a chronic condition. I can't get rid of it. I just sort of have to deal with it just just to make it feel better as often as possible. And so I think that I've had to take a little bit of perfectionism off my plate and start to trust, you know, trust my editor to see earlier drafts than I would have otherwise sent um, or trust, you know, that like other people can take some of my burden for me. I'm a very, Louisa from Encanto comes to mind, her service <laughs> pressure, which is a real traumatic bop. Learning to rest has been a big thing, but, but also just to sort of accept small victories. So it's just like, okay, maybe this draft isn't as good as I wanted it to be, but it will get there. I will get it there. I'm at least like moving forward. You know, my son does not sleep through the night, (laughs) but he's happy, but he's eating, but he's laughing, you know? And so it's been a lot of changing my mindset and seeing what is unmissable in the moment. That's easier said than done. And so, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, that's a doozy. Like that's a big one. (laughs) This is chronic pain. This is, we're just better, not heal it completely. Yes. But even that is like massive. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and talk about your book, talk about your life, talk about your process. Thank you for sharing this. I know everyone can't see, but thank you for sharing this adorable little one. Um, and I see that he is just about done. So we're going to wrap this well, yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that other listeners will stay awake for this interview, but if not, it's really soothing. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. I'm just so honored that anyone wants to hear about this book at all. I truly thought there we're going to be like a few people who are going to love it. <laughs> now, I like can't literally, I want to say from like the first few pages, I immediately was like texting people and I'm not doing anything anymore because I'm reading this book. So don't message me and you just need to read this book too. And if you want to know what I'm doing and, and you want to talk to me about anything, then you need to read this book because that's what I want to talk about. That right um, there is the dream. Forget the TV adaptation. Well, don't forget it. It's good. But, but certainly that is the dream. Yes. Well, thank you. This has been wonderful. So the Atlas Six, Olivia Blake, it's out now. Go get it. It's wonderful. It's worth it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.